Hello and welcome to the second episode of DeFi Discussions. Today's episode, I have a I have Joe um, from DeFi Lunch, and I, this, this episode, I also have a special guest. Uh, well, he'll be my co-host for go, going forward. Uh, he's Niblets in the in the chat, but he's going by he goes by John as well. So today's show should be really good, and uh, this but this show is mainly about people around the space and. That's the the main the main thing for us here, from the Bitcoin maxis to the people who think Ethereum's gonna gonna eventually flip Bitcoin, to the people on on page three of of Coin Gecko looking at Coin Three Thousand. So I I want I want to know about all the people around the space. I want to learn from other people's mistakes and redefine the definition of insanity. The crypto space changed my life, and I want I just want to discuss it with people with like minded people like myself. So let's get today's show started. Let's bring on on Niblets. What's up, buddy? Hey, hey, gents. How you, how you doing? doing? Yeah, man. Excellent. So, let's bring on Joe from DeFi Launch. What's going on? Hey, guys. guys. How's it going? Man, what's up? Appreciate appreciate you guys both for doing this. This is uh, should be fun. Absolutely. So, um, yeah. So, so uh, let's get right into it. Uh, Joe, uh, where where did it all start for you, man? Crypto. Um, no, let's go back a little further. Let's go back. Um, <laughs> let's go back to the sandbox. What, what, what did you want to be when you grew up? And you had sand in your mouth. Oh, what okay. Did you um, want to be when you grew up? Well, I was. Um, I don't know if you guys know this, but I was an army brat. So I grew up all over the world and all over the United States um, on military bases and in a few cities. So I always grew up with everybody um, as a kid, and you know nobody was really from anywhere other than you know. Uh, America, basically. So, you know, I kind of bought into the whole um, or, or really liked the whole decentralization of democracy when I was a kid. And so that was always a constant theme in my mind, the checks and balances there. And then um, I went off up when I was a little kid. I always wanted to be like, I think the three things in eighth grade were, I want to say like botanist, um, pediatrician, and maybe explorer or something like that. Oh, and wow. so, you know, yeah, I've always had this kind of inquisitive nature when I was a kid before screens, you know, and I was traveling all the time. So I was by myself a lot. I was an only child. You know, the only thing I do is read. So, you know, I read tons of books. I mean, probably thousands up until I was 18 because it was the only thing to do. And um, so I always kind of joke. One of the lines I always used when I was younger with, with uh, gals and bars and stuff was I was like, uh, you know, I used to read encyclopedias when I was a kid. And I said, I'm really smart up to feet. After that, I'm just guessing. <laughs> so, but that was always my thing, just to kind of uh, learn new things. And, um, and then I did a career in finance and strategy consulting and tech and ended up um, running into crypto kind of in the early 20 teens, let's say maybe 2012, somewhere around there. And I would hear little bits about it. And, you know, like I remember distinctly one article about somebody in Tallahassee who was said was mining on laptops and had people in town you know, doing it. I read the article and I kind of thought about it. I was like, yeah, Bitcoin. I'm like, don't credit cards work? Or, you know, I don't, I don't really get where we're going. So it didn't really resonate. And it took about, you know, a few more little experiences like that. And then finally around 2017, um, I started really paying attention and yeah. uh, maybe in the summer. And I didn't really do a lot of, maybe even a little earlier than that, but I didn't really do a lot of moves. I just kind of waited. And it wasn't until around um, January of 18 that I really got involved when I, brought in a well i met actually i met that's when i met brad right around then too we were working on a few projects and then 
Um, I got a client which was encryption, which had done an, um, they had a token DNA and it was all about the genomics and, you know, digitation of personalized medicine and those kinds of things. And, yeah. and I came in and advised them and, and I said, you know, this stuff really makes sense. And, you know, I'm not the most technical person, but I mean, as far as with cryptography and things like that, but I understand how finance works and I understand, you know, markets and in, in those things. And, and I just, you know, kind of fell in love with it at the point because I, thought, you know, this has to be the next evolution of the space. It has to be faster capital flows, yeah. um, you know, velocity capital, all those things. And so, you know, five years later, done a couple of, um, had multiple clients, um, been in a couple cycles, uh, started doing the show DeFi Lunch with Brad. God, was that like, I think October 2021. And, yeah. um, you know, here 250 episodes later, you know, we don't hate each other yet. And, um, you know, we have a good time and that's how I met you guys too. So that's the thing that I, I think you're really going to like is that you meet all these additional people that you would never meet. So, you know, that's kind of my story. Um, I talked to a lot of you guys and, you know, Niblitz has a great story too. So, you know, I'll just toss the torch to him at this point. Well, um, real, real quick though, let's take, let's oh. take it back a little bit further. Um, so like, so at, after you graduated high school, um, did, what, 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 like, can you walk me through how you got that far? Like, so you graduate high school. Yeah. What was next for you? No, I was, I was, um, I, my dad had gotten out of the, had retired from the military when I was a uh, junior in high school. We were in North Carolina then at, at actually at Fort Bragg. And then he went to grad school out in, um, in Phoenix. And so I went out there for my last year of high school. I mean, I always moved. I, I lived in 14 places before I was 18. So it didn't really bother me. Um, it's why I do like corporate development and business development, yeah. things like that, because I what, what don't have a problem thing? talking to people. Um, it's tough. I think DC was the one I always felt the best in because really? everybody there was the same. Everybody was like a diplomatic brat or an army brat or, you know, Navy brat, everybody, lots of government kids there um, or people whose yeah. dads have been in the government. So a lot of um, people who grew up overseas, um, it's a pretty cool mix of people. Um, so I'd say probably DC, but you know, yeah. at different times of life, um, you know, I enjoyed like, you know, I lived in Nebraska for a while, oh, um, wow. Phoenix, Arizona, Chicago, yeah. uh, Japan. DC was your favorite, really? Well, just because <laughs> of the environment. I mean, also oh, yeah. I had, a, you know, yeah. after school, after, after college, I had, you know, spent a lot of time there and that was, you know, kind of like the stuff that they would make sitcoms out of basically, if anybody got a hold of it this, this day. <laughs> Probably so, get canceled um, pretty quick. Shouldn't his, uh, his Philly bias show through. Come on, there's nothing really that it shouldn't be that surprising for DC. I mean, really, should be. I, I mean, you know, I forgot about I've been that. there a few times, and I'm like, oh, I don't, I want to leave as soon as, as soon as I got there. But uh. well, Philly's <laughs> Philly's a great city. I mean, that is actually yeah. um, a lot of times that's a cool city for me. Like, if I want to spend a couple of days somewhere, but don't feel like going to New York or yeah, you yeah. know, there's so much in Philly with the museums, the food, the neighborhoods. Um, but I, I do have a funny Philly story um, that you'll like. There was this bar I used to hang out on Capitol Hill when I was younger, and they would, uh, you know, for what was the Redskins back then and the Philly, the Eagles games. And Eagles crowd was always the toughest crowd. Um, I mean, there were fights in the stands. I mean, it was bottle liquor bottles being thrown on the field. It was just, a, you know, like a European uh, soccer football match. It was just insanity and, in a good way. And um, so we took a bus from the bar up there to watch the game. And on the way out after the game, I think this, I don't remember if the skins won. It might have been, no, it wasn't the body bag game, but 
But it was another game like that where it was close. It was a brawl. And so the bus was leaving the parking lot and it was just like a mob of Philly fans <laughs> chasing after it and throwing rocks and bottles at it. Oh, and we man. barely got out with our lives. It was so, it was just crazy fun. Uh, but yeah, that's a big, that's, that's, that's a big rivalry. Makes me ashamed. No, no. Like, <laughs> now that was the that was the eighties, dude. That was the eighties, late eighties. So that was a juggernaut match between the Skins and Eagles and Giants, yeah. where they were always brawling at the end of the year, and it was not, you know, there weren't. Let's put it this way: there weren't concussion protocols back then. Yeah, <laughs> kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. It was pretty brutal. But yeah, man. Right, so yeah. I'd say probably there. But all right, so you you graduate college. Um, what what, what college did you go to? And I went to. I started off in college. Well, I started off at the University of Michigan, and I wasn't much of a student there. I managed okay. to hang on for a while and had like a, you know, no, no, no GPA worth mentioning here, um, but I had a good time. And um, then I ended up, uh, after multiple years, you know, three to four years there, I uh, took some time off and, you know, went to the beach, ended up in D.C. Uh, working there some, and then trans. My parents were living in North Carolina then, so I went back there and transferred to Chapel Hill to UNC. Um, you know, kind of had to fight my way in there because my grades were, were not the best. Yeah. So I had to kind of well, come in through, that? like, uh, political science okay, and, like, international management, international relations. So that's why you see me talk a lot about geopolitics and things on the yeah. show and try to weave all those themes down because that was always kind of very interesting to me. And from there, I ended up in D.C., and that's where I did all the tech work, consulting work for, um, you know, uh, this is kind of like late 80s through early 90s. Um, yeah. Lots of system integration work for different, like, tech clients. and But it was nothing. I mean, we were, like, using X windows. And I remember one project, it was laying a um, Mac. Um, we had to put our product on top of a Mac OS running on top of a Unix platform and a SunSpark station. And it was just, you know, all just basically making the screen show a window was a like $80,000 contract, basically. So there was not a lot of, you know, what we take for granted now. And then um, then after I think it was like five or six years of that, I ended up um, there were like a bunch of budget cuts and stuff in D.C. So all the firms were laying off. And then I ended up going um, um, to grad school and I ended up at University of Georgia and it was like a summer apply. I got it in August and, um, and, you know, spent two years in Athens, Georgia, which is another fun town, you know, with the 40 watt and, um, um, REM and, um, B-52s. I don't remember any of the, any of those bands are kind of old, I guess at this point, but, um, hung out there for a couple of years, picked up a few clients in Atlanta, um, for projects they had invested in and ended up back in DC and, um, and then like ran that up through .com and I had, was running a venture fund then and um, a buddy of mine, he had taken this company public. He had put a bunch of money into it. So that's when I started doing all the stuff in Asia and spent all that time over there. Um, and then .com uh, cratered and I just, that's when I moved down to Florida because DC was a little too intense because that was right after 9-11. Yeah. And, you know, just have worked clients ever since from, from here, um, you know, what, doing the same thing that? I Sorry. So what what, what no, was no, life ahead. like um like during the dot com bubble? Like I, I I was just a kid back then and uh, yeah. I was very interested in like how everything was and, and how life was during that time. Well, it had come out of um there was like a financial crisis, the Asian financial crisis in the mid nineties. 
Um, okay. South Korea, I believe, was where the epicenter was. And um, then I kind of taken everything down. I want to say 80, excuse me, 90, 94, five ish, maybe seven, somewhere around there. And then okay. then all of a sudden dot com started picking up. And I remember specifically I was still in Atlanta and um, I remember the Netscape. Uh, was it Netscape? Yeah, Netscape IPO. And everybody was like, what the heck is this? You know, Netscape. And I'm like, that's yeah, something to do with the Internet, you know, and we're like all looking. It's like going to be the thing that was going to change the world. And we're all like, yeah, OK. And um, I picked up a few clients at Atlanta. I was one of the first. Re- well, actually, the first reverse mortgage auction company. Um, I was advising them. They raised like a quarter million, excuse me, 250 million. And, um, you know, went on a ramp, eventually sold to um, some company in, in Amsterdam. I can't remember the name, but and another one I was uh, involved with was EasyGov, which I did all like the pay the parking ticket online and all of those things. So it was cool stuff out of there. Um, and then everything started when I got to D.C., I ended up with a consulting firm uh, called Adrenaline Group that um, was kind of the epicenter for all the dot-com stuff in the mid-Atlantic. It, um, like they did, like McKinsey would come to them to build projects, NEA. And it was like when, at that point, it was like all the business dudes sitting around going, hey, let's do this dot-com project. And they had to go raise money to go hire developers to build it. It was kind of past when all the developers would build it and then go get money. So that's always a good indicator for the tail yeah. end of a cycle when all the business guys are pitching deals and getting developers. But um, it just was fun. I mean, it was all out. Because um, I also, you know, the same time, my buddy's company went public and um, and then I was running the venture fund. So I was traveling all over the place. I mean, it, it, it was, I look back on now as the funnest time, really. And I got a feeling we're going to be going, we're going to be going off. But before we go off somewhere else, I want to catch, I want to catch you on a couple things because you dropped okay. the big issues and they just sort of blew past them. Like, oh yeah, and then I went to Asia. Oh yeah, and then I was like, <laughs> hold, hold on a minute. Because if I've got your timeline right, like that, your time in Asia would have been right about when the, uh, you know, the, the, the Asian financial crisis was happening, right? Like the paper tigers were all catching on fire and falling apart. So did you get there as that crisis was happening? Did you get there before that crisis started to happen? Like what, what was your relationship to how, how that was happening? What was happening there in the financial world at that time? Yeah, um, some of my friends um, were working on uh, the Japan desk for like Department of Treasury and other groups. And so there was always a lot of interest. A lot of my friends were over there, but it wasn't about China then. It was about, you know, Japan. And so when I really started going, I'd always had this dream about going to Hong Kong and doing deals there ever since I was a kid reading some of those books. I don't know if you ever read like um, Shogun or um, uh, just a Hong Kong one called uh, maybe the Tong or something like that, but it's James Clavel, these historical narratives. And I always thought that that would be cool. And, and so when I really started going there was um, for the fund. So, you know, we had raised a bunch of money and, and then I was the guy who was going over one of our investors was, you know, the second biggest conglomerate, um, in Hong Kong called New World. And so I was going over there for those deals and then also down in Singapore um, for to meet with like Thomas Stack and GIC, which are the big sovereign wealth funds. And, you know, we basically were doing deals all over the place until, you know, 9-11 hit and that seized up all the capital markets. So it just went from like 100 miles an hour to zero instantly. Um, and, you know, I thought that was going to be the fastest one ever. 
<laughs> you know, until uh, as Sean talks about the Thanksgiving Day massacre in like November of uh, of uh, what was it eighteen when BTC went from six to three. But yeah, those were heady days. It was a lot of fun, and so most of that part of Asia was um, Hong Kong and Singapore. Um, when I went back five years after that, no six, um, and I was working for a Chinese real estate developer. Um, you know, bringing in U.S. investment. Um, that was like 06 through 08. And that was a huge project. And that was probably the one, I, you know, I was in China like 30 times in, you know, maybe two years or less. And, you know, that was the most exciting because, you know, it's it was still pretty much um, just, I don't want to call it the wild, well, it was the wild west business-wise, but it was all modern and everything. It's uh, It's much more so, but you know, I have tons of stories from those travels that I'll, I'll, I'll leak out occasionally. But, you know, again, super fun time. Yeah. So, so you were living like like the other day when I when I when I brought up how how China um, accounts and, and, you know, how, you know, all the ghost cities actually go on to GDP, given how their accounting works. So like you were living. So I wouldn't call it funny because it's just a different way of accounting for how your finances flow. But it does skew things and it does make things seem better bigger than they otherwise would because it's realistically it really doesn't make a lot of sense to count you know a city that can house you know fifty thousand people that's basically empty um that's a that's a drain on your gdp to keep that infrastructure running that's not a positive on your gdp but yet their accounting practices add that as a gd so you must have just been living exactly how those uh, accounting differences um were being played yeah well i was working with Two of the two of the big, you know, global accounting type firms. Um, you wouldn't know the names, and um, and you know, it was pretty common knowledge that all the financials were, um, um, you know, there were these like three percent bearisher companies on every financial statement. Um, that was kind of like called the I called them the Guangxi companies, which is sort of like in other worlds they might call it the Bakshish companies, but in the U.S. they might call them the super PACs. You know. Pick a system. Who knows? It's all the same. Yep. And um, and a lot of stuff was never on the financial statements. And these were, you know, audited ones. So, so they are, you know, not to throw stones, but you know, at that point they were pretty creative. But to your point about real estate, yeah, I mean, I was in Suzhou and Suzhou at different points, and um, and you know, you would go in and there's just you know, thirty buildings, high rises, empty, and. Wow. You know, I mean, I go into these cities of millions of people and literally I was the only Westerner there. Um, and, you know, the mayor was there and everybody else. And and you just look around and it's, you know, it's it's, you know, I think I don't know how they've done lately, but, you know, there was a lot of like coal dust residue and things like that around. So it was kind of I don't like when I say primitive, I'm not saying it in a negative way. I'm just saying that it was heavy industrialization, maybe like London in the 1890s with the, you know, um, in the in the air. But the buildings were all modern and everything. Now, there were issues, you know, the quality of construction was not like tip top. Um, you need to have leaks and things like that. And I don't know how long these buildings are going to last, but they have, you know, one and a half billion people to house. And to the government, the number one thing they don't want is a bunch of poor um, uh, rural people storming the cities because they don't have any food. So, you know, most of that housing and the building of it it's really built because they have to employ all the migrant labor and the migrant construction workers, and they take the money back to their, their villages out in the, in the countryside. And that's what the villages live off of. 
So, you know, the government would always keep encouraging building, but there's a couple of things going on. One, there, back then there were all these SOEs, state-owned enterprises left over from the 60s. And they were really kind of vehicles where the Communist Party would sort of fund projects, you know, like, oh, let's give a billion here and you know, dole it out to these groups. Well, you know, there's no bidding process or anything like that. People would just take it. And they became the places when they modernized where everybody would dump all the bad debt mm-hmm. because the, China, the government was never going to do anything. They were just going to be like, you know, um, black holes and they were going to forestall writing them down. And that's a significant amount of money that's there, I think, still today. But, you know, more importantly, in the Chinese real estate sector, it's, you know, it's 50 percent underwater right now. Um, it's supposed to be worth 29 trillion. It's not. I mean, I've seen three studies that show it at like 14, 15 trillion. So they don't have enough money to bail it out. Um, so it's going to be interesting. But, you know, the bottom line, I'll just say this finally about China is that I, the people were so cool to me. Um, everything from the regular people um, to, you know, the super rich people. And I always had a fun time and they were always super cool and they always wanted to learn. So it kind of really fit into my thing. You know, I might give the Chinese government a hard time on Twitter occasionally, but the people are great. You know, just like in, in mo- every, when I did a lot of work in Germany, it was the same thing. You know, I just kind of roll in forgetting about World War II. And, you know, first thing I said in English and nobody spoke English and I switched to German and everybody speaks English. So, you know, they were nice too. And when you, when you break these things down, the people are always cool. You know, it's just what... Um, when they coalesce around a national goal, let's say, is when people start becoming more, um, uh, yeah, and keeping people out, not wanting to hear different things, or yeah. you know. So I, I, I had a good time. It was tiring. I was probably yeah. sleepy for a decade after that, but um, <laughs> definitely had a good time. Indulging one more question, Shizzy, just uh, bear with me here for a moment. So yeah, good. This is awesome. Bring this back again to earlier things that you said, and to bring it back to the, the topic at hand, the, uh, the the DeFi topic a little bit. So yeah. you, mentioned, you mentioned, you know, that you uh, sort of in about 2017, you started getting deeply involved into into genomics into that sector. So the question mm-hmm. I have for you then is, and and you were in a part of it as you described was both was sort of on the financial side of that particular sector. Fair enough. But at that time, from what I recall, like it was really like things like the quantified self was becoming really, really important. 23andMe, everybody, everybody, at least that I knew, was talking about genomics, personalized medicine, et cetera, et cetera. And there was a huge groundswell of of interest and excitement around what that was going to do to healthcare. This, you know, three trillion dollar in the U.S. alone juggernaut that, you know, doesn't move at all, except this looked like it was going to start to move things. But why is it why did you why did you go on the sort of finance track from that point instead of further along the genomic health care like there's there was still a lot of there's enormous amount of important work to be done even on the business side mm-hmm. the healthcare business side what what pulled you to the finance side and away from the sort of healthcare business side at that point i think that um you know i think the space is still evolving. Um, it has a lot to be done because the primary um, blocker of mass, say, adoption is um, the type of sequence it is. So the 23andMe and the Ancestry type sequences, if I'm not mistaken, it was um, SNP technology, 
which is a, maybe a two megabit file, let's say, of data, or two, per, two to four percent of the genome. I haven't looked at this in a year, so I might be off a tiny bit. But the one you really want is whole genome sequencing. And that's like 90 to 96 percent. That's the real um, more subtle markers um, and, you know, minor um, genetic markers that you need um, to really accurately forecast. Now, the idea is that, you know, I, I had done this is what we were doing at the Venture Fund 20 years ago, too, was proteomics. And, you know, there are maps and there are patterns in the data just um, like in anything else. And it's not binary like computers, but it's got four, four values, four letters. And so how those are ordered um, means what uh, proteins are going to be produced in the system. And those proteins and how they interact, like, you know, think about, say, cerebral palsy or, you know, I think Parkinson's too. It's really like just one gene that gets out of whack that, um, does it just one day you flip the switch and all of a sudden, you know, you're sick. It manifests over like 10 years, 15 years. And so what you want to do is over like an insurance company, over a length of time, you want to measure people for like snapshots. And then over their life, you want to see what happened from that snapshot. So, you know, eventually, you know, I don't know, a couple of generations from now, I presume, you'll be able to say, oh, hey, you know, you're, you're showing this pattern for these three markers. You know, you need to modify your diet a little bit. If you do nothing in 15 years, you're going to have, I don't know, uh, Parkinson's disease or diabetes or anything, you know, H H Huntington's, any of those. And so you can modify your behavior and then push that off and they can keep marking it. Well, they'll always have probabilities like with that marker. Now, this is where it gets a little, you know, Gattaca-like if you've ever seen that movie. Um, and that's why the protection of the data is so important is that it could be, you know, used for negative outcomes, you know, when you can start, cause you can look at things like, you know, people's mental health. Um, there's even a gene, they call it the affair gene where brides get their husband's seek or their fiance sequenced to know the probability of him cheating on them. Um, it's that crazy. So, you know, when I ran, yeah, it's insane. So when I ran across, this is how, potentially giant this space is, but it's just going to take time to develop. And so what the thing with encryption was what I thought was cool about blockchain and crypto was you had a way to um, keep that data and in, in control of yourself. Like you would have a wallet just like we do with crypto, but it would be your DNA data. And then you could use it in different ways to get side gigs and earn money um, without releasing it to the general public. So 23andMe for example, you know, most of that data is is shared unless you opt out specifically. And, you know, they share it with pharma. So, you know, somebody's got a file on you somewhere that shows, you know, hey, this is, you know, if you did that, this is so-and-so and here's their six other people. I mean, if you looked at like that Idaho murder case, um, I saw this once and I haven't seen it a lot, but they supposedly... This has happened before. I think the California Strangler guy or PTBKK or whatever that killer was, same thing. Um, they went through all the 23andMe sequences, basically, or Ancestry and 23andMe, when they had the DNA sample and found close relatives or distant relatives. Then they went to them and talked to them. Hey, by the way, do you have any family in Moscow, Idaho, or you know, up there in Alaska? And they're like, oh, yeah, cousin, cousin Johnny. And then boom. They go watch Cousin Johnny and they catch him. Well, 
you know, I don't have a problem with that. But, you know, if you think of all the other ways it could be used that are negative, you know, somewhere we have to find a balance in privacy in that data to where it can be used for something like that, but not for an insurance company to say, oh, no, this guy's going to get a heart attack in 15 years. We can't insure him. So that was really fascinating to me. Is there, hmm? will there ever be a real balance between the two? I feel like, I feel like I don't ever see like a balance. I feel like it always being used in drastic cases. I think that the, like anything in say, um, I guess it would be, is it chemistry? Yeah. Like, you know, when I was in college, you know, I think the farthest thing we got down to was quarks or something like that. These small particles all the way in the atom. And, you know, now it's like, there's all these other particles that I don't even know what they're called that are smaller and smaller. So I think you're going to see the same thing in genetics or genomics that we measure these markers um, now. But I think, you know, if you look at it from a, you know, protein or differentiation standpoint, cell differentiation, once, you know, you get a, a fertilized egg, a zygote, it splits like, I think, four times to 16 cells or whatever, and they're all identical. Each one is, is a copy of you. And then at 16 cells, they start specializing. And that's when you get the proteomics going. So, you know, you're running matrix matrices of like, you know, um, thousands by thousands of combinations. And so to me, I think it will get even smaller than that. So even though maybe the surface layer of sequencing might be leaked out or already out there in the domain, as time progresses, the more important pieces are going to be the small ones. And then we can still protect those if, you know, we take action. Of course, you know, nobody does because, you know, Silicon Valley wants that data too. Um, governments want that data. I mean, look at um, the Ancestry.com. I was meeting with them a couple of years ago to try and they wanted to unload all those databases. So I was trying to, you know, put something together with some overseas projects with some guys out from L.A. that were in personalized medicine. It was a very high-end uh, group. but. The guys who came in and bought it was um, um, a GIC from Singapore with Blackstone. So they came in and bought all those genomics. And then Richard Branson went into 23andMe and, you know, purchased that. And, you know, I guess they're reversing it, reverse selling it into a public entity. They may have already done it. I, I honestly haven't been paying attention. But, you know, if you have the data and you're a public company, you got to turn money off it. Yeah. So it's an asset. So that's already out there. Um so I don't know. It's a very tough question to answer because, you know, we all know we want privacy. I mean, um, we believe in privacy um, because otherwise, why would we be doing digital? Um, there you go. Um, you want to read that, Shizzy? Hey, it's a, what is that? P&L over privacy unless you protect yourself. by Yeah, uh, so P&L is, yeah, P&L is like a profit and loss statement, income statement. So it's, all about the profits. So they're going to use it. Um, you know, we see it just like, you know, you go custody your, your coins at, you know, Gemini, Genesis, FTX, wherever you see what happens, you know, they got to spend that out to go make money. The same, they're going to do the same thing with the DNA data. They already do. Um, but you know, I guess the big summary is that I've always been interested in healthcare since I was a senior in high school and on the cover of time magazine, you know, that's all we had back then was magazines and TV and newspapers. 
and books. Um, it was World. an article on, <laughs> I know it's going to sound crazy to you guys. It's like, when I was a kid, I used to think, you know, we used to joke about abacuses or abacai, you know, the, the way people would count stuff or, or, um, you know, we had manual typewriters even until I was in college, but it, it seemed like so long ago. And I know everybody listening now, they're like, damn, they it's very hard to conceive of things like that. I mean, when I'm pointing out to my daughter and she's like, what's that? I go, oh, that's a phone booth. <laughs> You're like, you know, and like these kids don't even know what it is. Um, Joe, she's 17. You, you, you set yourself up saying you wanted to be an explorer when you were a kid, like, you know, like yeah. and, and, and cook. It's like, uh, geez, Joe, how long have you been around this block? This is this has been a while if you want to be an explorer. It has, man. But I think what makes it seem so short to me is just that, like, when I look back, you know, it's not like a linear progression to me. It's like, it's almost like every, say, those 14 places I lived as a kid, it's like each one is a different childhood. And so when I think about it, I'm not thinking about it through, like, the other locations to when I would stay in fourth grade. It just, my memory just goes right to fourth grade and all the people that were there. Yeah. So, you know, so basically those, it's like a, you know, um, a multiverse, basically. Yeah. You know, those worlds kept going without me. <laughs> You know, I popped in for a little while to that world. Then I, then I left and they kept going. Yeah, and yeah. so, you know, but, you know, some of them remember me, a lot don't. But, you know, so I can always pull a lot of experiences together that are not um, from one foundation. Like if I had grown up, say, in, um, you know, North Carolina the whole time. I mean, I was born in Detroit, actually. But let's say I'd grown up there. You know, that's all I would know. For sure. You know, from childhood. So that's what makes it seem so um, short to me. And I have to frequently go, wow, you know, that's, that was a while ago. <laughs> a few minutes ago, you started going into a little bit about some of the um, some of the troubles or problems in, in the healthcare space, especially genomics related. Um, let's tie that into into DeFi and TradFi. So like in your experience, in your many years of experience in TradFi, what kinds of what kinds of problems, what kinds of mistakes had been made in TradFi that DeFi really should learn from and that DeFi can learn from if it just talks to the right people because that knowledge, that brain trust is there. Just We just have to break through the wall, the barrier between the TradFi and DeFi worlds to connect. So what, what, sort of ex what sort of mistakes would you want everyone in DeFi to learn from that you saw or did um, back in the TradFi world? Great question. Yeah, I think that, you know, me, I always, I mean, look, you got to sometimes cut corners to succeed. We all know that. Everybody does it. You know, you pick how much you want to cut the corner. Um, I try not to cut the corners so that I could get in a lot of trouble on because what's the point then? Um, but a lot of people don't mind. And when you're younger, it's easier to get lured into that by bosses and seniors and people like that. So, I mean, you guys hear me talk about a lot. I'm not big on, you know, worshiping anybody, um, any influencers or anything um, that, you know, I really believe that we have to take care of ourselves and, you know, don't, you know, um, uh, get a, a crux or something like that, that, you know, worth, causes you not to think just to have faith in something. I'm not really talking about religion here. I'm talking about like Twitter and stuff like that and, and influencers. Um, but I, cause I saw it in trade fight too. I mean, I've seen it in law firms. It's everywhere. I mean, human nature, 
you know, you get lured in and then all of a sudden, you know, somebody's walking you across the line a little bit and it's just a little bit first and then it's a little bit more, but you just have to always be careful of that. And, you know, to me, it's not like you go, you know, tell on them or anything, but you just file it away because it's shit now that you have, you have leverage. And so you save it. And then if it ever gets too far where you don't want to um, pursue, then use that as your exit. Um, so I think the same thing happens, you know, that philosophy of when, you know, you're looking into the abyss, so to speak, trying to decide what to do. And if you don't do it, you maybe you're going to lose all your money or maybe you're going to get fired or something like that. You really got to take a, a deep, hard thought there. Think and, you know, think of the repercussions and, you know, then try to do the right thing. Um, it's hard, but, so, you know, I, I see it everywhere. I mean, crypto, yeah. too. That's what I'm kind of getting to. So, so this whole notion of, of sort of, you know, we often will cut the corners we feel we need to to get to where we want to be. It's fairly common and universal. But in the space of in high tech and especially in crypto and especially, especially in DeFi, you know, this whole ethic of, you know, move fast and break stuff um, has become a semi-religion. And, mm -hmm. so, you know, and I compare that with, you know, especially in, in DeFi and crypto with, you know, one of the fundamental values is immutability of the, of the blockchain. Like when you build something, you don't change it. So that whole ethos of move, of move fast, and, fast and break stuff is almost fundamentally incompatible with the underlying technology where you can't move stuff and you can't break stuff because when you're done and you send it out, the only way that you are trustworthy is, you know, like, like if, if, if Bitcoin kept changing every few months, if there was always this constant churn in how it works and what it does, well, then, you know, the trust will start to evaporate. So, so uh, like Ethereum? Yeah, well, <laughs> well, there's somebody we know who might say that, yes. Um, <laughs> how, do you, how do you feel the space needs to respond to this? Because both sides of the argument have pros and cons of move fast mm -hmm. and break stuff versus the sort of the, immu the immutability of, of the solution. How do you see being able to reconcile those and with human psychology? And I don't expect you to have an answer, but just, you know, let's work out. Let's just, you know, talk about what we don't know. Yeah. Um, you know, to me, I think there's two. One of the things that always excites me about DeFi is sort of the experiment of it. You know, and we talk about, you know, we try to find the stuff on the edge. Uh, and, and figure out what they're doing. And a lot of times, you know, I remember 21, I'd look around and I'm like, you know, 70,000% interest. It's like, yeah, right. But, you know, you st I still knew if I put money in for two hours that I was going to get 70,000% interest divided by, you know, 365 divided by, you know, 24. And, and so I would do it. But, you know, I kind of, then you start seeing what happens is, you know, somebody's like leading the effort or promoting it somewhat and you know people are chasing it like it's a dream like you would be buying lottery tickets let's say and they're FOMOing in so I think that the intentions of a lot of the teams are good now there are some bad actors just like there are everywhere else um, but I think the ones that we try to find on or that we deal with on DeFi Lunch and others we try to find the ones that I think have something practical so like I talk about Geist I mean, there's supposedly nobody running it. It's just a protocol going. I don't know if it ever goes anywhere, but I'm like, that's an experiment. You know, I'll just leave my money in there and see how it turns out. You know, um, you know, well, Brad's project is an, is an Ave Ave fork. So, and uh, right. Ave runs really well decentralized. So, there's no reason why Geist shouldn't, unless the uh, the the people who the programmers 
program something in there differently than Ave. So that's why another reason why I do trust Geist as well. Yeah. So like, so when we talk about the rebasing stuff, now I was never in Ohm and those. I kind of jumped in right when the show started, just because I was like, well, this is kind of fun. I mean, it didn't, it didn't really always make a lot of sense to me, but I'm like, let's see what happens. So to me, you know, I never went in over with anything that I didn't. I mean, I didn't want to lose anything, of course, but I wasn't going in with money that if I lost it, I would was so much that I would be like, you know, um, in trouble. It was something where like if I lost some, you know whatever it was a couple hundred bucks or 500 bucks or whatever that, um, you know, it was like, Oh, well move on to the next one and learn. Now, if bad actors are running those protocols and, you know, trying to get that in desire into people with no, um, really ex real experiment going on. And we ran into quite a few of those too. Um, then the, that's something that is difficult, um, to me. But I still like pursuing these um, things and I don't mind if they break, but I don't want them really. I'm, we kind of saw it with like 3AC and Terra and FTX and Alameda and whatever. There was an oh, Celsius, you know, all of those. You know, we kind of, I mean, we, everybody saw the Celsius thing coming three years ago, I think. You know, it was sort of like, it just can't, what's the model? It doesn't. You know, and then you kind of go, oh, they're parking it somewhere else to get more yield. And then when I hear that, I mean, from day one, yeah. you know, OK, they're dependent on the other yield. Yeah. Um, so they, they were all dependent on Terra Luna and getting the 20 um, percent from Anchor. So what, what so th th that's what Celsius block. That's how they're all earning their money. So what, once they lost that, it was it was kind of just like, what, what are we doing? And then yeah. it just yeah. all fell apart. So t Terra Luna really was the. Uh, the, the big ship that fell it took i mean was that the tide that lift all boats so was, that was yeah yeah and, and it was not you know and basically you know greed took over in everybody's mind because it wasn't decentralized you know it wasn't like kind of on the cutting edge of something it was just cranking yield and regularly so so i guess niblets i think it's just that balance again you know nothing being binary or zero sum that you know, there has to be a certain amount of breakage to figure out what works and what doesn't work. Um, but, you know, if you could keep good actors in there, in the system. Now, that's why we always talk about trust the code, don't trust people. Because, you know, then you can eliminate, hopefully, a, a chunk of the bad actors, not all of them. And then, you know, over time, you know, you start learning who are the legitimate people and who aren't. Um, you know, and we figure that out. But everybody who shows up new doesn't know that yeah. and you know they run across these new ones that are running and you know and everybody looks at you know whatever altcoin new thing shows up everybody thinks it's going to be the next bitcoin and you know and they're like damn if i got into bitcoin at a dollar or a nickel or a penny or whatever you know i'd have 87 billion dollars right now and so you know which is always nonsense because you would have sold with a billion you know yeah. it, so it's like, it started, it but the point is, there are no more. Yeah, there are no more coming like that in my mind. Um, so that's unique, but there's still a ton of cool tech that can be developed and you know tied into you know kind of the Web three story, the metaverse story, whatever that's going to be. You know, the personalized medicine story. There is tech there that makes that work um, in my mind. So the finance stuff around DeFi, I think, is is interesting, but um, and I, I like it, 
but what other what's what's intriguing to me another point is that um you know most of the people that are under 35 have been working with um you know during a time when banks haven't paid interest you know when i was a kid bank deposit interest was like you know all the time it was like somewhere between six and eight percent you know maybe five at a yeah they were high um, because the risk-free rate, that treasury rate that we, I mean, the Fed rate that we talk a lot about, the historical average has been 6%. So, I mean, pre, at least pre-2000 it was. So that's what we called the risk-free rate. So you always evaluated investments like, you know, if you, it had to be able to beat 6%. And it had to, you know, you're always like, well, shoot, I could get 6% with zero risk, you know, or I can get eight with, medium risk or i can get 15 with high risk so you're always you know that's where the valuations and the p l's you know profit and loss statements and all the cash flow becomes so important so it was a tighter one to fill but the plus side was that you know all the retirees you know your grandparents and everybody they had cash in the bank you know and maybe some you know a stock portfolio like but it was more indexing type stuff because this was pre i think it was pre etfs as well but there were mutual funds so it was more like spread the risk, but you were, you know, getting six percent on money in banks, and you were probably getting. I think the rate on stocks is like twelve and a half percent on average yeah. per year. Um, so Joseph, so that's, that's what people would rate. look. Since you've raised this, this I'm sorry. Should, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Since you raised this, is this an issue that Chizzy and I were just talking about just the other day? Was this notion of when your insured stable investments are able to start delivering a reasonable yield? What happens to the risk premium that you're willing to that you're willing to deal with, and how much higher does your yield need to be in a high risk environment like DeFi to get you to loosen up some of the money to put it back in, right? Like, like the, the gap between six percent in a in a stable vehicle from your bank and twenty percent had you know Anchor and Terra Luna survived. You know that gap is fourteen percent. Is that fourteen percent? Are you willing to risk everything? that might go to zero to get that 14%. I think that's a pretty hard sell. And so yeah, then so what you're happens, risking hundred to make 14. Yeah, exactly. And that's a very, that's a, that's a, that's a really bad proposition. So I guess, but the question I'm asking you then is what has to happen in this space to encourage retail money to come in more given how in TradFi the safe, the safe, secured, insured bets are now starting to yield something a little bit more reasonable. That's a good question. Um, I think that, you know, I mean, it's funny when we would be like pitching real estate projects, you know, and you'd be going in with like IRRs, which is another way. It's another like a rate of return thing, like an ROI. But it's like instead of doing NPV, some people like to see IRR, internal rate of return. And, you know, it got to where if you were pitching something that was higher than 12%, people wouldn't even look at it because they're like, oh, that's too risky for me. Mm -hmm. I mean, they wouldn't even read it. They would just see IRR 12%. They're like, what are you crazy? You know, that's like, you know, throwing dice in an alley, basically. And so, but that was a while, that was, those people are all retired by now. So, um, you know, I think that it's a really good question because, you know, when I, I always thought of it when I was younger, that if you had a million bucks, You'd put it in the bank and you'd get 6% interest or you'd put it in municipal bonds and get 5% interest. And that was tax-free. Yeah. So you basically get 50 grand for every million tax-free. Um, 
And so I always looked at it that way because the whole thing is you want the money never disappear. So I think that, you know, houses have taken over a lot of that kind of money in say balance sheets of individuals because it's not as liquid, but it's solid, it's dollar denominated and you know, it's been, it grows. Um, but I think that what gets, you know, the big investor, I mean, I think, you know, honestly, I've always thought the institutional model makes a lot of sense for, for DeFi because a buddy of mine, um, well, acquaintance used to run like a fixed income portfolio for BlackRock and it was like a trillion dollars or something like that. But they would pull out, this is, you know, a couple of years ago. So he'd be eking out like 25 bips, like a quarter of 1% return because he could only invest in, you know, fully insured back by the U.S. stuff because it was all pension money and things like that. And so you can't invest that in um, like endowment money, pension money. You can't invest that in anything other than risk free. I think it's pretty much the rules. But if you could if you were running a trillion dollars, what if you could take like uh, well, 100 billion? I mean, it's too much, but, you know, you get where I'm going. And you could put that into something that was like DeFi for a couple of days at the end of the quarter and bounce out like maybe, you know, 3% interest on that. Well, if you add that to the whole stack, you know, you got 3% on 10% of it and you got a quarter percent on the rest, you know, you've kind of almost doubled your return. I'm, I'm just guessing, but I'm suspecting that's, you know, near 50 bips, uh, 50, you know, half a percent on, you know, a trillion dollars. So I always thought that there's a way to play it there where, you know, they're only looking for another quarter point or another half point. And, and, you know, it would have to be some kind of institutional DeFi where it wasn't, where it was risk-free or, or some semblance of sanity that they could handle. So I always thought that was there. Um, and I think at the individual level, there's another thing that goes on, you know, not most of the people aren't, I mean, maybe they want to make money, but most people aren't really looking at it from a finance perspective. You know, they're picking projects that they like. They like the outcome of the project and they get behind it and they believe it. And that's a lot like .com yeah. days. Um, you know, people want to change the world. And so to me, I think that that stuff has to keep going. And it's going to stumble and make mistakes, but the pieces always get picked up by a bigger player um, or someone else, and it keeps getting to market. And so um, I think there will be more innovation. I mean, can you imagine, like, you know, like we talk about Hive Mapper and that kind of, like, mining, but you do it with your DNA wallet. You know, right. with your genomic sequence. So, I mean, there's so many things that can still come out of finance and DeFi. I, I don't regard it as dead by any stretch of the imagination. Um, it just has to get through this crunch right now and get to real DeFi. So, wouldn't the best yield be locking up on the Ethereum blockchain or locking it up? on the phantom blockchain to support the network wouldn't that be like so if you if you believe in the chain you can earn the six percent on ethereum the 12 percent on polka dot the 29 percent on canto and just locking up on the chain to valid validate transactions wouldn't that like if you're a blackrock and you see that and you just put like i don't know 100 million in each chain that you believe in and then you just earn that yield wouldn't that be like almost free risk yield depending on the on the blockchain I think that, I mean, nothing's really risk-free, um, absolutely. But I think that, look, that's a, that's a great institutional play. I mean, because they can calculate the returns. They know the risk. 
I mean, they're probably controlling the servers where they're, you know, staking or the nodes where they're staking it. Um, you know, so to me, I think that can handle big volume. Yeah. Um, and I like it. Node as well. Yeah. And so to me, I like those plays and, and they, you know, I don't, they're all, like you said, Canto's doing 29%. And I think uh, Ethereum's doing about six or 5.8. Um, yeah, and I, what's Phantom, like nine or something like that, or eight? Uh, I think maybe Phantom I don't slowed it. They're between six and lower. seven. But, but look, those are ones when you come in, then you're supporting the community. You know, you're helping, you're validating. So I like those plays a lot. Um, but, you know, if you're coming in, if you're degenning and having fun, then you got to really run on the edge where the risk is, you know, and that's when you see things happen, but you also, you know, bad things happen, but you also see good things happen when something gets a lot of attention and everybody comes piling in, um, you know, like NFT projects, you know, where, you know, NFT DeFi to me is, is a huge potential, you know, unlocking the value of, of the art. Um, fractionalized real estate to me is a type of DeFi where you can tokenize properties and then, you know, investors can buy those tokens and stake them for yield somewhere else um, or do different things there. And, and, and those buildings all have, you know, uh, I guess uh, rates of return or cap rates or whatever the real estate word is um, that, that, that they're going to get free. Yeah, they're going to get earnings. Like if, so, can, if I can buy stock on like if I can buy a to tokenize of the, the Comcast building in Center City, like it's not going nowhere. Yeah. You know, I, and right. It's earn, earn the rent of owning that percentage of that coin. Yeah, and it's going to go up in value too, you know, with the price of the asset. So anything, I think what's kind of missing or has missed, you know, is that, you know, to me, it's the tokenizing and fractionalizing of real world assets makes sense for DeFi. Um, I think that DeFi just, you know, other than very specific ones like Canto or Geist or, you know, these sort of... Um, autonomous or just protocols that go that, you know, I don't know where those all, what they all go toward. They all go to app stores on chains. They are the chains and the infrastructure in the background. will not even notice what they are anymore. Just like, you know, with the, all the phone companies, um, you know, they yeah. piggyback other networks and do this and that. I don't know where that all goes. Um, but then there's also another breakout to me between like, say us, versus say, you know, India or East Africa or, you know, Colombia, that there's different needs for these products there because the local power structures um, extract the wealth out of the um, distribution of the resources to the people that need it most. You know, the wire transfers, the taxes, the, you know, whatever that they're using to extract wealth. You know, I like the fact that it can end up in the individual person's hands, you know, their wallet, just like what the UN is doing in Ukraine right now with uh, Stellar and USDC, where they're bypassing all the aid organizations because that's where the graft occurs. That's where the stealing occurs. So they just get it right to the individual and that person does what they want. So, so whatever we call it, um, I think that there's plenty of yield generating opportunities that'll be coming. Um, from fractionalization of assets and, you know, genomics and creation of new assets and derivatives and all that kind of thing. But I also think there's going to be all this new tech that's going to be more like, say, tech that was developed, you know, in different times where it's not going to be really about crypto or the token per se. Um, it will be about the underlying technology that uses those um, features in it. 
um, but not about raising money with the coin, if that makes sense. So to me, I think there's a ton of opportunity um, still to come. Um, and that's all not even talking about Bitcoin. All right. So we're, we're, we're getting close to the hour, but I want to I want to sort of back you into a bit of a corner, Joe, and get specific. So let's okay. talk. What, what sort you of go way over, by the way. <laughs> OK, yeah, sure. Of course. Um, so when you look at the mistakes that are happening in DeFi, I know I know one that's come up often that you'll that you point out is, is people who don't lawyer up. Right. Like oh, yeah. hundreds of millions, millions of dollars on, on the hook. And why are you not lawyering up to make sure both that you're covered, but not making dumb mistakes? Like it just, why are these people, why are these projects and people not doing this? That seems to come up oftentimes in, uh, in, in some of your discussions. Are there any other just, just boneheaded mistakes you see happening in DeFi right now um, that really shouldn't be happening that, that should be easy to fix but you know but it's not clear why are they still happening why are they have why is DeFi making these mistakes over and over and over again good question well, yeah that is a good question um with the lawyering first you know obviously a lot of people that do startups and are trying to build something from scratch you know they don't have that amount of money intimidates them and they don't really have it and no one's going to front them for it. And the lawyers aren't going to go on net 30 with them because they don't know them. So once, but once you get it, the money raised, let's say, um, then you should put some money aside to just kind of um, protect yourself so that you can always have representation if you do something silly or you, you know, inadvertently break a rule. Um, but I get it. A lot of people in crypto don't like lawyers and a lot of people don't like lawyers in general. But, you know, my experience was always with, um, you know, again, big DC law firms. Um, and I can't remember. Yeah, my first way into one of them was through a general counsel at an IT services company I worked at. And, you know, that was it was then called um, Hogan and Hartson. Now it's Hogan Lovells. But that was, you know, 30 years ago. And I think, well, less than that, 20, 20 plus years ago. And, um, you know, you 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 basically bring them clients. There's no quid pro quo at all. There's no, um, you can't have that. If you're not a lawyer, you can't split fees and things, but you know, it, human nature says if you're bringing people clients and they're making millions of dollars in fees, then when you call them the next time, they're going to answer the call. <laughs> it's like, and you're like, Hey, you know, I need a favor. I'm doing this and we're going to go raise money. You know, can I just give you a, you know, a small retainer and then we run with this for a while we see how it turns out. And, you know, they're always like, yeah, whatever. And so, but, you know, I set the table by giving them a bunch of money first um, or clients first, referring them in. And, you know, and then you can't talk to the clients about it because you don't want to get in, in the middle of whatever they're doing legally. You don't want to, you know, that's confidential. But you just, you know, I do this with people all the time is that, you know, you do them favors. You know, in this case, the favor was clients. And then when you need something, they do it. They, they want to help you. So, um, but I think that's a philosophy you can do anywhere in life. Um, so, so that's the first thing. And the, the second part, um, which I have to admit, I, can you repeat the second part, Nibbles? <laughs> the second part was, um, so yeah, the, 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 mis the, the classic mistake seems to happen in DeFi. A lot yeah. of people not lawyering up. The next question right. is, what else have you noticed? What other kinds of classic mistakes are, are, are folks making in this space? Given how young yeah. How young the space is, they may not realize these are classic mistakes because they haven't been around long enough. 
Yeah. Right. Um, a couple of things. Um, you know, whenever I talk to the lawyers about starting projects in the U.S., they, the first thing they always say to me is like, dude, you're not like in your early 20s where you can go lay on a beach somewhere for a couple of years. Or you can't go chalk it up to experience and then go be a barista and come back and do it again. It's like, you know, it's too much risk for you. And I'm like, okay, um, I get it, but I still like the tech and everything. So, you know, I think that these are lawyers that talk to the regulatory groups, which tells me that the regulatory groups are just scouring everything. And so I think one of the big mistakes is don't underestimate the power of these groups, <laughs> no matter what you call your protocol or whatever the technology is. Um, you know, they have the power. Um, one anecdotal story, guy that I met through another guy who was running around buying up debt from companies. Uh, I mean, you know, billions of debt had an opinion from three law firms and two of the big consulting firms that it was legal because then he would go sell the debt to other companies and they would like, you know, shield their income from taxes. The IRS got pissed and, you know, they just came in and slammed them no matter what the things let said. And they just were like, no, that's not happening. And, you know, they can do a lot. So you have to fold. So the point is that you see it with the SEC, you know, with the, the Dow one library Dow, I think a couple of months ago, um, you know, it's like, just cause you're saying it's a Dow doesn't mean you don't own it or you don't control it or, particularly if you're like bragging about the fact that nobody will ever figure out what you're doing um, to your friends in the message chat, you know, it's like the messages are not, I mean, I, I use telegram and signal, but I don't really assume it's a hundred percent secure um, because you don't know what the other people are doing with it and they're exporting it. So when discovery comes in any kind of case, you know, they want all that stuff and they usually show up um, and take the phone from you in person and make you open it. So all that stuff comes out. So I guess I would say, you know, to the younger folk, because you're already used to sharing everything. I mean, they can, you know, they can find you anywhere just going through your social media. It's all there. Um, so like this right now. Yeah. So just be careful. And I'm not trying to, you know, I'm not trying to help anybody do anything wrong. I'm just saying, remember that everything is open. Whatever you say when you're chatting with your friend going, ha they don't know. They're going to know eventually if you're behaving like that. So, you know, don't just don't be so hubristic that you think you're don't be so smart that you think you're smarter than everybody else. Because these guys have nothing else to do and they have all the power. So, you know, be careful there. Um, the other thing I think is interesting is that, um, you know, again, hiding behind certain structures and names, you know, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, you know, there's going to be a duck to them. So, you know, be super careful on those and, and pick your jurisdictions properly. So, you know, if you're in the U.S., pick, you know, obviously New York's a top one um, because of all the uh, New York financial authority stuff. Um, bit license. You know, yeah, just they have, they're very strict. You know, you need, what is that, that bit license, I think, to do anything yeah, with license. a New York customer. So, you know, you pick or you pick things that you can just launch organically and they're out in the wild. Um, or, you know, if you're overseas or you're not an American, then, you know, you can pretty much, you know, I don't know they do what you want, but you don't have to worry about that as much uh, than your home country stuff. As long as you're not like bringing in American investors, 
um, because they'll extend that to you. I mean, look with, with finance right now. I mean, yeah. they'll extend it there. So I would just say be careful on that and, and don't think you can't get caught. And the other thing I would say in DeFi that I find interesting is, you know, just because everybody say it's de- says it's decentralized, it doesn't mean it is. Um, you know, and we tend to want to find those. And if you, you know, ask, you know, talk to multiple people, figure out what is and what isn't. And, and you know, don't think you're going to be able to hide behind DAOs either. It's just, it's, they're going to, if you're doing, you know, if you're raising money, selling tokens, you know, that is in the U.S., you know, that's got to be registered. Yeah. I mean, you just have to be, I mean, I'm not saying I agree with the regulation. We all know it's, a, even the U.S. lawyers say it's just too many regulators here. I mean, I'm hearing a lot of people say go to London and, you know, I was over there for encryption and there's only one regulator and you go in and meet them and have a cup of tea with them. And they ask you some questions and you answer, and then you either get the thumbs up or the thumbs down in that meeting. So obviously you know, council. Well, you know, it's, it's, you do have, yeah. I was like, this was like Taylor, Taylor Weissen or something like that. There's a, I think a German firm that was there, but, um, you know, you bring them, but these are like, you know, they're all like tied into the establishment. If you're running that regulatory agency, you're like hooked into the, to the big powers to be. And they just want to see if, you know, you're going to play ball and, you know, not break the rules. Or if you skirt the rules, you know, you're going to make sure everybody shares in it or whatever, um, you know, in an appropriate way. But, you know, in the U.S., you just got to be careful. So those would be a couple of things. And then governance tokens, too. Um, you know, I see a lot of potential there for trouble um, going downstream, you know, with uh, how decentralized are they really. Um, you know, a lot of that, but I think that what's missing right now, we kind of hit with DeFi 3.0, we kind of hit the wall because it was all about yield. So I think now it has to come back to like, you know, real applications, safe yield applications, of course, or different unique things that generate yield. Yeah. That's not about going out and parking another platform, you know, ways that you could do it off of the activities on your platform. Um, and then all the other stuff around, you know, let's say data, privacy, you know, genomics data, health data, um, fractionalization of real estate, you know, all those assets being brought into DeFi in my mind and capturing yield off of those. I think, you know, if you fractionalize your house and all of a sudden you can just lay in 5% of the value and get 5%, you know, I mean, who wouldn't do that? You know, well, you don't have to sell it. You brought up something really interesting just a few seconds ago was was this notion of um, you know earning yield by because you staked it with somebody else who's earning earning yield by staking it with somebody else et cetera et cetera how similar is that dynamic that we're just getting out of in DeFi how similar is that dynamic to what happened in 08 where everybody was essentially holding everybody else's bad debt and it just took one dominant fall and it just cascaded around everybody is that a similar analogy or is it really very different situations? Well, I think that, you know, what I remember in 08 was that, you know, because that was when I was, you know, had deals blow apart in Asia um, with U.S. players because their stock just went from like, you know, 80 to $2 um, since recovered. But, um, you know, to me, the contagion of the problem with 08 was that, um, one, um, well, there's one big thing to me was that, um, somebody figured out how to take uh, a paper, you know, like 10 real estate properties in one security, 
and it'd be a paper. But usually in a paper, 90% of it's A, 10% of it's subprime. Yeah. So riskier paper. Yeah. So somebody figured out a way to like cut that 10% tranche out of each security and put 10 of those subprime chunks together <laughs> and still have it called a paper. Yeah. Okay. SM or Moody's was rating it at A, and um, I guess S&P was rating it A. I'm, if I got the names wrong, apologies to those companies. But, um, you know, so then they could then bundle a bunch of those together and then sell them to other investors. So all the European banks, you know, basically there was mortgages everywhere. I mean, all over Florida, everybody owned five condos. And, you know, they were not, you know, these they weren't, um, you know, multimillionaires. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, you got one and then you could use it as you didn't have to show income or anything. And you would just then use that as, oh, I bought it for 300 and now it's worth 400. So I'm going to take the 100 from this and put it down on this one and let me buy that one. And so you were doing the same thing like in DeFi, looking for yield. You were daisy chaining that all the way down until the music stopped. And, you know, when that happened, then, you know, all of a sudden those properties that were worth 500 became worth 150. I mean, pretty much overnight or within a couple of weeks. So then everybody was underwater. So everybody started dumping or they strategically defaulted and just held on as long as they could because there were so many, you know, foreclosures that people were living in these units for like five years without paying any rent, mortgage, or um, sometimes not even paying maintenance fees if it was a condo. So it just kind of gutted it. So I, I think it was kind of very similar niblets in a lot of ways to sort of the catastrophes in DeFi. You know, when one when one like key component of that yield chain fell apart, then it sort of cascaded through everything. Yeah, it seems like so. Going back to um, Chizzy, your your uh, your interview with Sean earlier toward the end. Yes. You know, he's like, oh, you know, what's the difference between this stuff? And I was like, actually, I think the difference between DeFi and Bitcoin is the fact that you can roll your own derivative instrument, just like yeah. you know, you don't you don't need to be working in an investment bank. You don't need to be a certified in, in invest. Like you don't need all mm -hmm. those things. Anybody essentially can roll their own derivative instrument, package whatever paper they want in any way they want and put it up in the market. But can't do that in Bitcoin. You can't roll your own derivatives in no. Bitcoin in that same way. So it does seem like there's a fundamental like mechanical difference in DeFi that's on the one hand dangerous because you can chop your hand off pretty easily by doing this stuff. Yeah. But on the other hand, you can possibly create some very interesting dynamics that simply aren't possible in Bitcoin. Anyway, just as you were explaining that, Joe, that just yeah. sort of fired in my head. Like, one thing yeah. about, that's, that's why in that conversation, I, I, I really didn't really want to jump in there because Maxis, there's really not much you can say to them when they keep saying <laughs> shitcoin. It's like, you know what, man, you're right. You're right. Like, you you know, so I, that's why I kind of just let, I was going to, I was going to let him win that one. I didn't want to come but, too hard. But the but flip yeah. side is, you know, their, their point could be, that's what makes Bitcoin safe and secure is you can't just roll your own derivatives. Look at right. what happened in 08 when, when yeah. professionals, trained professionals were allowed yeah. to do that. Um, so the system is, is secure from that kind of collapse. So I can see the argument on, on that side too. Uh, but anyway, yeah, so, I mean, yeah, just, so, yeah. so you, and then we see, we have guys like, well, we have, we have our own Bernie Madoffs right now, right? Like we've got to just yeah. have a bunch of Bernie Madoffs running around uh, DeFi and crypto. Um, playing similar games. So it makes me wonder, you know, is it, are we doomed to repeat these same classic mistakes over and over and over again as generations aren't aware of them and have to relearn those same lessons? Or how do we bring those lessons forward so that, you know, more projects, more people don't get burned in the same way? 
Yeah, I mean, it's very, you know, one of the problems in society is that there's not a good transition of experiential knowledge yeah. from older to younger. Um, because the older people sometimes feel threatened by the younger people or, you know, or maybe they just don't know how to do it. It's only recent in the last 10 years where they've really tried to figure out how do you transfer that, like someone who's worked for 30 years doing one thing and here are the new people coming in, the new young, you know, the new hires, you know, how do you get as much of their head into the new heads so that you, you, you sort of, um, accelerate that learning curve? You know, because, you know, for the first year on a job, I mean, well, not maybe not a year, but, you know, some amount of time on a new job, you know, you're trying to figure out what you're supposed to do, <laughs> you know, and you're making mistakes. And so how do you shorten that the fastest? And and I think it's the same in, um, you know, again, I'm not in the developer community, so I don't know. The, I think there's a lot of knowledge transfer there that happens that's probably in more um better than what I portrayed in other spaces. But as far as the business and investment and finance side, or just entrepreneurial side, um, you know, a lot of mistakes just get made. Um, somebody told me once, uh, it was Fred Bureau who invented MLS, the real estate like multi-list service. And he a great story, but he was in Denver and he got fired or quit his job or something. He decided, I'm gonna start a business. He had no money. And so he went around just picking up, decided, took him some time. And he decided to create these three ring notebook binders of listings from all the realtors, you know, the windows listings, basically, and give a notebook to every realtor so that they would all know every listing. And that's what became, you know, MLS, you know, the mega billion dollar business that it is today. Um, but, you know, he told me that the average entrepreneur fails 12 times before they succeed. So that means you got to F up 12 times on average before you succeed. So what usually happens? Most people can't get past the second F up. <laughs> it's like they fold the tent and go for safety. Yeah. Now, of course, some get lucky and hit it on the first one or the second one. Um, but the average was 12. Now, that was a ways back. Maybe it's different now. But the point is to get to success for most people, there has to be a series of failures. Um, behind you. So, um, so on one hand, you know, we want to have the most experiential knowledge possible, wisdom, whatever you want to call it, so that we have the best odds of succeeding of, as an entrepreneur of succeeding on that next venture. Um, so if we can get that into younger people's hands faster, you know, the businessy sides of things or the strategy sides of things or the operations side or the marketing side, then then they can go faster once they have product to the next level and then figure out quickly is it success or a failure or do I pivot or what do I do? It really comes with like education, right? Like if we can, if we can kind of what I'm doing right now, like if if you Mm -hmm. educate yourself, you can really stop, you can really learn from other people's mistakes instead of just making them yourself. So if those same people don't have to make the 12 mistakes if you really just go find people who's already made them and really educate yourself and really dive in and do things like this because we have the technology today to do exactly what i'm doing right now trying to learn from things that i haven't experienced yet exactly i mean you know what a lot of people in my career i'm never the guy who i don't care if i'm wrong you know i'll ask the question 
I don't care if I don't know. I'll ask the question. To me, asking a question isn't a sign of weakness. Uh, I know some people think it is, but to me, it's not. Because otherwise, how do you learn? And if anybody's going to mock you for asking the question, then you learned a very valuable piece about, of information about them right then and there. And it's that they're insecure. So when you learn that, all of a sudden, now you have leverage on them. You don't tell them that. You just know in your head, you know, how to, you learn how to, what's the right word without sounding too Machiavellian? <laughs> Not manipulate, but influence, okay? Influence. So, yeah, influence them and or persuade them into making a decision that you want. Um, so, you know, I think that, um, you know, it just has to be the way where you feel like I see it on Twitter. You know, sometimes people will, you, you, you can tell that there's a question pending from someone and then it comes in and then you respond. And I don't respond like, a, I mean, sometimes I'll throw a little joke in there, but, or bury a joke in the middle of three sentences. Um, that's a little bit of a shot, but you know, I tend to try, even if they're calling me stupid, I just ignore it and respond, you know? Um, and you know, then they fold and it's like, you know, kind of like, you know, that's when it's supposed to get interesting right there. You know, you, you put a question up and all of a sudden somebody answers it and all of a sudden they're scared of it. And I, I guess, you know, I don't know what they're thinking, but maybe they're thinking like, oh, my God, everybody's seeing this. What if I'm wrong? What if I say something stupid? This guy's going to go viral and take it viral and I'm going to have two million views of my shitty, my bad posting. Um, but the fact is, nobody cares. So ask your questions, do your, learn, talk to people, learn from everybody else's failures. I mean, we all, you know, one thing I tell my daughter, if you're not failing, you're not trying hard enough. You're not pushing the envelope hard enough. You're coasting. So failure is a big part of growing up. And, you know, I don't mean like getting drunk and running people over and get thrown in jail failure. I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, like pushing, like saying, hey, I think I can do that and say you can do it. And then maybe you didn't do it exactly right you know some people consider the failure and they go slink away and they're embarrassed but you know the answer is really you know i'll have it 100 percent right next time it's not i'm sorry it's nothing like that it's like i'll get it 100 percent right next time and you go again you know so that's what everybody wants to hear too do you, hmm? do you, do you play poker um not that much really i'm not okay. that good no okay. yeah it's it, you've used a few poker terms, so I, I was just just curious if you uh, if you're a player or not. Uh, I'm I, I like you. I don't play a lot. Play a little bit, mm -hmm. but one of the things that I've noticed is um, in this context of a sort of failing is there's a particular strategic failure that you do in poker, right? Like you don't just go like, all right, I'm going to fail a bunch, and then you know hopefully I learn some stuff because in that case you'll be out of money before you learn something and you're out of the game. Mm -hmm. There's yeah. a strategy about how you in. fail in order to you know discover this guy's tell. And right. so are that guy's willing to go and see how they this guy or guy responds to your mistake. So it's almost like, you know, you, you've got not, not necessarily a plan, but you've got some things that you're failing in. You're you're willing to fail in order to earn, earn, learn back. Um, as right. Being like, hey, you know, I'll just fail and see what happens. Um, that's that's a recipe for, you know, spending the rest of the night at the bar. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. You have to. I mean, obviously you want to pick your opportunities that you have the most, you know, um, opportunity to succeed at. And, you know, no need to charge the machine gun nest. Okay. It's not, you know, those failures you don't recover from. So, you know, it's more about um, 
trying to pick your battles. And then when you go for it, if you don't hit the bar, then other people might regard it as a failure. But you know, to me, I'm like, hey, I learned 75% of it. And I'm going to get the other 25% next time. So, but I'm not talking the way, I think what you're saying in poker is, you know, maybe you have the three sevens or whatever, and you just, you know, you want to, um, you know, you're just measuring their response to your different types of betting techniques. Yep. And then when they make a thing that you fold on purpose just right. to see what they do next. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you have a little bit in the pot, you know, you're not doing it when you have like, <laughs> you're, you're all in basically. Yeah. So that's a good analogy. That's a good analogy. Yeah. Um, so, so speaking of, of, of some of these, these failures, are there, are there any projects you've seen that have been spectacular failures? Like, like they really, they were doing something that was going to, you know, push the limits and it was just a spectacular, wonderful failure. Um, God bless those guys for trying. Any projects? Luna? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, anything that runs up fast like that, where a lot of money and heat's coming into it, you know, it tends to people start paying it, the internal team start paying too much attention to the price, whether it's stock or it's tokens, and it distracts them from executing on the, the business mission. Um, so to me, I think anytime you see that kind of a rapid thing, then there is potentially issues where it is going to crash and burn. Um, but I think that if I was thinking about, you know, life sciences and, you know, pharmaceutical development, there's a lot of spectacular failures there in the sense that, you know, getting it through the FDA process and the amount of money that's spent. Um, and maybe you never get it through phase two of clinical trials and you've spent, I mean, literally hundreds of millions of dollars. I mean, those are big flame outs. But, but the thing in that model is that, you know, however many, let's just say eight out of 10 fail, I think maybe it's seven out of 10. Um, but those other ones that make it, I mean, they're like blockbusters. So it makes up for all the other failures. So I think you also have to think of it in that, you know, when you're building a portfolio, think of it the same way. VCs think the same way that, you know, venture capitalists that, you know, they're going to do two, 10 deals. Six are going to be total dogs. And one will be a break even. Another one will, how many do I have? Another two will be so-so and then one home run. And that makes up for all of it and gets you your 8X or 10X or whatever. Um, so the difference in like VCs is who can get the second one out of those 10, Yeah, you know? And so in crypto portfolio is the same thing, you know, whoever. And I think to get that, you really got to know the rep of the developer teams, their track records have some kind of, um, the word's not inside information, but let's just say, additional insight into who's doing what there um, and then basically make assessments on whether they can execute. And if they can execute, then you kind of also have to lay it over another filter of, you know, the whole economy and, and then the whole crypto economy and what's going on in all of those at that point, you can make some good picks then if yeah. you just blindly, you know, chase like the hexes. I mean, I'm not picking on hex. I picked on them a little bit today for that, guy wearing the hat out there talking about his daughter. I was just thought that was appalling, but you know, those kinds of big pump ups, I don't, um, you know, those, if you, if, if, if you don't know where the yields come in, you are the yield as yeah. Sean says, yeah. but yeah. in those there's not even yield, you know, it's just all, you know, appreciation and more people coming in and shoving it up to the top. And, you know, when it's you see those models, too. 
like being president, huh? being president in in the AMAs, being president in in the the, the spaces, yes. being and just watching and and you can, you can really get it, like just by listening to somebody, you can really understand if, if if they're bullshitting or if they really know what they're talking about and this could work. Because if if you're president and you're really doing the research, I think you you, you have a lot better chance of finding the gems than fi- and then yeah. kind of weeding out the bad actors. And, and talk to people too. Like that's what I one of the things I love about the show is just talking about things like projects to everybody, because I know everybody else looks at it then, and then people form their opinions. And you know, some don't like it, some do. But you always learn five or six more things, and it helps you think. Well, maybe that's not the right one. Um, maybe it's this one, their competitor. And you know, it doesn't have to be a you know you're by yourself throwing you know darts at a board trying to pick winners. It really can be, hey, I like this project. I like this project. I like this project. And then let's talk to other people and see what they think. And, you know, I mean, like a great example would be Klima. You know, I mean, God, I got killed over there. But, but you know, I like the project. You know, I'm like, hey, who doesn't want to? Hmm? I'm sorry? Ohm fork, right? An ohm fork? Yeah, something like that. It was in that sort of rebasing days. Okay. And, but, you know, everybody was saying, oh, they're going to get the war chest and then they're going to go buy a bunch of stuff and do a bunch of stuff, um, you know, which I guess they did to a certain extent. But to me, that was an interesting project. Um, you know, Canto, guys, they're all interesting. And, and if they don't execute, then so be it. But, you know, people are going to learn from those projects. So, you know, if you can find 10 things like that and talk to all your buddies about them or read about them, and then kind of decide maybe there's three or four more you learn and then kind of put a little list together and then try to, you know, you only need one winner out of those 10. I mean, one big winner and you're, you're fine. Um, but you don't figure that out by just looking at Twitter feeds and, you know, reading uh, paid ad sponsored ads, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't work that way. So um, for the younger people that, you know, are in there, um, it's a primary source of information. It's becoming more and more my primary source of information now, but I didn't grow up in it. So I don't know a lot of people have. Yeah. So, you know, just, just kind of go outside of those bubbles to find more, to, you know, listen to Shizzy, listen to Niblets, listen to Brad, listen to Sean, um, you know, and everybody else out there. There's tons of people to listen to. doesn't mean anybody's right a hundred percent, but you know, you kind of pull in all that data and sort it in your own head. And then, you know, then you learn like when people say, hey, do this one. And, you know, maybe you did it and it did well. And so you're kind of like, oh, yeah, that guy was or that gal was talking about that one. Or or maybe it's, you know, you, you just train wrecks of projects behind someone or all none of their picks work. And then you're kind of like, well, the last nine have been horrid. The next one's got to be good. <laughs> you know? So it's like, you know, there's a whole there's a whole game there, too. But it's just the more information, the better. That, that's the mm-hmm. Jim Cramer promise, right? That's it's just like, look, you know, one of these days, one of these days, this day, the guy's got to be right. Just um, no, yeah, so- it kind of goes to that Twitter thing I throw out sometimes when somebody's really just annoying. I'm like, yeah, hey, even a broken clock's right twice a day. Exactly. <laughs> it's like, yeah. Well, so almost Om, a good example of 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 the question because you know you look at that whole class of rebasing tokens. Now, whether or not mm-hmm. rebasing you know works out or worked out in the end, maybe its day is finished. But I'm glad 
a bunch of people went out and tried. They, you know, there was there was a whole class of token, and a whole bunch of experiments were run, and we could see the results of those experiments. And you know, I look at rebasing as sort of at a, as a, a bit of a spectacular failure, kind of. Mm -hmm. I agree. That happened because a lot of it, a lot of stuff came out of that that uh, um, that's instructive. Um, whether you're at a technical level or just you know a trading level, you know whatever level you're working at, it seems like a lot came out of 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 that entire space. And I look at something like Alchemix as well. I don't know if Alchemix will achieve its goals or whatever, but wow, you know its goals are 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 very ambitious, and yeah. they're clearly working. They're clearly executing and marching in that direction. And it's fascinating to see what works and what doesn't, and what gets traction, yeah. and what doesn't. You know, if it fails. Spectacular failure! That yeah. God bless them. I'm glad they. I'm really glad they did it. But if yeah, it goes, Alchemex could really, could really be something special. It could, could be, be really something special. Amen. Yeah, I agree. I, I think that you know the one thing um, you know with Alchemex, you know, when I first was looking at it, I was like, wait, self-paying back loans. I mean, this is kind of like you know seven trillion percent APY over here. This is, um, you know, this, this is too good to be true, and you know. As long as everything's going up, it's not. Um, but, you know, we saw what happened when the prices of the underlying assets go down, the term to pay back goes up, and then you end up kind of having to pay it back yourself just to get your, your coins back. But also, I'm not saying it's a negative. I'm just saying that that's how it kind of worked out um, because of pricing. But also, if we talk about all the other ones where, you know, they have to go get the yield. I mean, Alchemix has to go get extra yield yeah. because they're also paying the note. So, um it's a it's a really cool model and I, what i really like about it is the hedging ability there so let's say you had 100 bitcoin at at sixty thousand dollars a piece well let's say you for some reason went and decided to go stake them there and borrow on them and i think the well they're they're eth if i'm not mistaken so maybe you can do w i can't remember but let's say like for the same yeah for the same example um you know uh, you could put it in there. Let's say BTC was at, I mean, ETH was at five grand. You go park in, you know, your hundred, you borrow, I think 70% against that. Well, you've basically just put a floor in of as far down as ETH can go in your mind, because you just took 75, 70% out. Okay. So um, in cash that's sitting in your account in stables or whatever, bought a house or paid college or bought a Tesla. I think we talked about all those things. So to me, I like that floor you could do. So, you know, you get that 70% out of that value in say, um, you know, USDT or whatever, then you go yield farm with that and go get your five, 6% as well. Um, to me, then if, Bit if ETH price went to a thousand, they liquidate the loan, but you still got the 70%. And, you know, instead of, you're not at 20%, you're not at 80% off, you only went down 30% off. Yeah. And so then you can rebuy at the bottom. So to me, that was always cool. And, you know, tax rules aside, I'm just saying, I'm not talking about how that's all calculated because that's, that's a, another tricky one that, you know, it's not like the regulators aren't going to notice that. So, but the point is you would probably have to, you would probably declare it all as revenue at that point And then, write off the 30% of the value as a loss expense on it. So you would still be net ahead if you, you know, if it was strictly going to be U S tax enforcement, if that even happens, I don't know. But to me, that's the cool part. It's not the, 
go get self-paying back loans. It's the ability to take 70% out of the value of something and hedge against it. So protecting against that drop, of course, if Bitcoin goes from 60 to, you know, what one thing, what's, what's Sean's like sort of, um, I don't want to make it a call, but the number he usually says is like 250 or something like that, if I'm not mistaken. Um, I believe you're right. Yeah. So if it goes from 60 to 250, well, you know, then you just pay back the 70%, the 70% of the original $50,000 value times however many coins it was, and you get all your coins back right then and there. And then you can sell them at 250. So yeah. there's really cool angles there to play from a safety standpoint, from a risk management standpoint. Um, that makes sense to me. And going in there to just do a loan and, you know, think that nobody's going to notice that, you know, yeah. that's, it's going to get noticed. So if you're an American, it'll get noticed. So I would, well, I don't right, think guys. that's the big play. We got to go. I'm yeah. Cut you off, Joe. I, I just have a few more questions. One more question for you, Joe. Uh, what, what, what's right. a really good book? I'm looking for a, a really good book to read. Which, which one of your favorite books? What have I been reading lately? Uh, not much. Um, I think, I, okay, I was talking about, okay, we'll take it back a little bit. Um, you know, I talk, sometimes I use that um, reference to the razor's edge. Um, you know, this book called The Razor's Edge by Somerset Maugham that I really like. Um, it's a World War One, post-World War One war story thing about what happens when you come back from war, you know, the psychological elements. It's a really good book, but it ties into a fun time in history, which is the 20s and, you know, post-World War One when, you know, all the American writers were in Paris, you know, um, Hemingway, F. Scott Fitzgerald, um, was it Gertrude Stein? And I think some other ones, but it, it was a cool time and, and the literature is really good. So I would say Somerset Mom, Razor's Edge. I also like Graham Greene books. Uh -huh. um, yeah. 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 There's like a quiet. First time, quiet, first, time hmm? I to, first time I ever went to Vietnam, I, uh, I, I was reading the uh, Quiet American on the plane over yeah. there. The perfect segue right in. Yeah, and I always like spy books too. You know, those are always fun, intrigue books. Um, but I'd say Graham Greene, you know, you can't go wrong with, um, you know, uh, like any of the Hemingway stuff. If he is, Movable Feast is always a treat to read. Um, but things like that. I mean, that's what interests me. I don't really read a lot of contemporary fiction um, anymore. Um, but, you know, God, there's so many books. I mean, that's just the ones that came to my mind first. I'll, and if I was going to say Hemingway, I guess I would say for the first one, maybe it's For Whom the Bell Tolls. That was the first one I read when I was in like 12th grade or something like that. That's a good one. Easy to read. I, I missed the comment from Sean, if you want to just get this real quick. Is, is oh. the issue really just human nature and not to repeat the same mistakes again and again? We need, we need, we need to remo remove the humans. I mean, I, I think we say that. I mean, you know, isn't that about uh, true decentralization, trust the code, not the people? Um, I think yeah. that's what we try to get to. Hey, thanks, buddy. Thanks, Sean. Um, but, you know, a lot of times the code's not quite up to snuff yet to be trusted, I guess, is the point. Um, because it, we know it can still be corrupted a lot of times at the governance level um, by insiders. So I think it has to get that to that level if it can. Um, I think it can. Um, but, you know, that's, that's where we're all trying to get. So all the failures are the mistakes and the learning lessons. You know, and I, and I honestly don't think a lot of these guys were really 
um, bad actors at the beginning. I think their business just got way out of hand beyond their control. And they were like the lumberjacks spinning on a log in the water, trying to like stay up. And, you know, then the prices went down and they started, you know, crossing over into customer funds. It's not, yeah. not like nobody else has ever done that in the past. It's, it's the big no, no, but you know, they didn't start out as bad actors. There are people that start as bad actors and, you know, it's a hustle from the beginning. And that's the thing that's what you usually see in like the, sort of pump up coins, you know, the, um, the ones that I always frown upon, you know, the influencer led ones that, you know, there's something like that going on a lot. So trust, look at the tech, what's it doing? Is it innovative? You know, developer team, is it a cool project you want to see the outcome of, and then put enough money you can afford to lose. And then hopefully we get there one day. Well, this was amazing, guys. Niblets, I appreciate it, man. It was it was awesome having you here for the for this interview. I definitely saw a huge difference from earlier. I had another guy coming in, man. Joe, amazing, dude. All I, right. I loved your story, man. Everything was was awesome. I really appreciate you coming on. Appreciate both you guys, man. Of course, man. And of course, Jesse, I I love your story too. Um, I was really impressed you shared that with us um, about you know the 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 software coding or projects you're doing at, at the the workplace and then all of this on top of that um, and Niblets of course you super impressive guy as well yeah I um, always enjoy talking to you we'll get it do a show maybe 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 one day this week or weekend or something just me and you that'd be awesome if if you have time well, he's super smart obviously. Um, with, I think, a master's degree out of Carnegie Mellon, if I remember correctly. Um, but he's your UI UX guy for anybody, <laughs> you know, who's looking to, like, clean up a sloppy-looking DeFi site. He's the guy to reach out to. Um, so, that's right. there and, you go. And th this CMU master's degree has got some domestic labor chores to take care of. We got some we got some dinner and some cleaning, some dishes to, oh, okay. to take care of. So, um, oh, yeah, you West Coast guys. <laughs> but hey man it was a pure pleasure uh really appreciate everything you guys do and i really appreciate your comments on the show with brad and i and um you know anytime you guys need me for anything just let me know sounds great joe really appreciate awesome. it cheers all cool guys you guys all right cheers bye-bye all right well let's wrap up wrap up the show uh again those guys are amazing you can find Joe on, on DeFi Lunch. Uh, it's Monday to Friday at 12 o'clock e Eastern time. And Niblets will be back here with me next Sunday. We have another in we have another interview. So it should be fun. Come back. Uh, should be next Sunday, if not another show in between that. And I uh, really appreciate everyone who listened up to this point because it was a nice hour and 40 minutes. I wasn't expecting to go for this, but I really enjoyed it. Learned a lot. Really appreciate those guys. And... That'd be it. Thanks, guys.